Well, what's new in camera world? Okay. Have you heard about all this uh, Peak Design drama? I have a little bit. I've been getting emails since I bought one of their cases. Yeah, can- camera gear adjacent, perhaps. Mm-hmm. So maybe this is a this is a pre-show thing. But you know, they came out with these new sweet iPhone cases. Yep. And where the action button is used to be where the mute switch is. So they just left a cutout instead of putting like a button thing in there. Mm-hmm. And as a result, you go stick your finger over that thing. You try to push down. Can't push the button. Yeah, you got to really, uh, really dig in there. It's yeah, like you're you, digging for gold. Yeah, you got to yeah. get a Q-tip. Yep. Reach in there and press that button. Yep. Makes it not very actionable. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, a few people complained. Maybe a few people didn't. Peak Design was like, look, guys, this is really hard. We didn't have, like, we, we knew this was coming, but, like, we didn't know what it was going to be like until we had the phones in hand. People want their cases before the phones even shipped. Mm-hmm. We're in a tough situation here. And they shipped like thousands and thousands of cases. Yeah. Yeah, they did. And then they were like, look, we know that this button thing isn't desirable. And so we're, we're going to give everyone who bought a case three options. You can, you can take store credit. You can return it and we'll give you one that has a button on it. Or we can send you a button. That uh, little like slots in, and you can like you can like fit the little piece in. Did, did I get all those right? Yeah, yeah, those are the three options. Yeah, and they're just like, here you go, guys. Anyone who anyone who bought any of these like sixteen thousand cases, yeah, uh, we're gonna fix this for you. And yeah, they, just, they, just, I, they the, took the initiative. The uh, the magnitude of that problem is huge. Like we're sitting here, I have one of their cases on my phone. I got this in the mail yesterday. Mm-hmm. And that was after all this news came out. But, you know, the way supply lines work and stuff, I mean, they've had these things, you know, coming in the mail for who knows how long. Right. You know, they've got a, a, a crate of them, you know, sitting in a warehouse somewhere and they're sending them out because people need cases. But And you bought that case like r- straight away. Yeah, I right? bought this like the day the phone came out or something like, you know, somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. And, and I just now got it. So, you know, they're a little bit behind on those shipments. But, I mean, yeah, it is annoying not being able to press that button. But I was really impressed with their response to this because, I mean... They they could have easily said you know we're sorry guys this happened it's it's a thing you know they could have not said anything yeah yeah and they would have been totally fine yeah I mean I you know when I bought the case I looked on the website and I could see the the picture of what it looked like so I knew what I was buying yeah and you know I was, I, I would have been fine with that but sure they could have come about they could have come out with a version two six months later mm-hmm. and everyone would have bought a case again they could have like yep. double their profits yeah yeah but yeah I, I was impressed with that response you know they say that. You trust the company more that has made something right than the company that never had anything wrong to begin with. Have mm-hmm. you ever heard that? Yeah, I have. And I mean, this is a great example of that. I mean, I, I already liked Peak Design, but I didn't have any experiences with their customer service. And it's nice to see that like they do, like this is how they approach problems like that. I was I was going to say that I, I, I really didn't need more reasons <laughs> to want to buy more Peak Design stuff because this is becoming a real problem, Daniel. It, it really is. I have... Yeah. I have like so much Peak Design stuff now. <laughs> and like now I feel like I'm just going to buy more yeah. Peak Design I mean, it, stuff. If you end up buying another iPhone, you're probably going to have to get one of these cases. I mean, I feel like I have to. I, I kind of like the whole little mount design. Mm-hmm. I mean, like it's yeah. got the little square on it. I mean, I need something to be able to mount it onto my bike and, yeah. you know, getting into a mount system. Maybe that's the kind of life I want to live. <laughs> and I'm already like, neck deep in peak design capture clips and straps and slings and travel backpacks and tech kits and wash pouches and camera you know, I mean, it's getting you're, crazy you're, honest, you're not even exaggerating like you actually own all of those items <laughs> yes i do <laughs> i just 
not sponsored. I mean, which is kind of sad too, right? Because you, you paid full price for all that. Oh, I mean, I, I look for deals <laughs> here and there. I got an email from Peak Design this week that was like, happy one year anniversary of your Peak Design product. And I was like, how do they know that I had that on my calendar? <laughs> I was going to call you. <laughs> I mean, I had already bought the things to make a birthday cake for my 45 liter travel backpack. <laughs> you have a problem. I mean, I don't think it's a problem. And even if it was a problem, the CEO of Peak Design would, would fix it for me. Welcome back to the Camera Gear Podcast. I'm Daniel. And I'm Lucas. And we're here today to talk about the gear, software, and techniques we use to shoot photos and video. Okay, last episode, maybe I was talking about Lightroom. I do think that was last episode. Okay, I I did it, Daniel. I took the plunge. I went I went all in. I'm actually surprised and impressed that you did this. I this this was a lot of lamenting and a lot of preparing of the way. <laughs> and I, I just, I kind of wanted to give you an update of everything that's been going on. It's, it's just, it's just been a lot. And I kind of maybe like tell you how things are going on the other side and just really, really hash us out. And right. so sounds good. Kind of like recap what we talked 30, about last 35 time. 35 minute topic coming up. <laughs> oh, geez. Well, good recap what we talked about last time a little bit was like, I'm using Lightroom classic. I'm using my iPad and like, there's, Everyone, a lot of people use this workflow of like you import the, the pictures onto your iPad, they sync to like the all synced location on your you know, Lightroom classic device and then downloads in the background into a folder that's like Lightroom library, Lightroom photos, whatever here it is. And then you can move those to the correct folder location in your Lightroom classic folder structure and all mm-hmm. this sort of thing. And I'm like, I do this and then I R sync it to my server and that's where my backup is and blah, 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 blah. And like I do all this because I want to like own the light like the main Lightroom library, blah, blah, blah. And like what I wanted to kind of consider doing was what if I moved into a non-Lightroom classic workflow and just went all in on Lightroom regular, which were to require me to have my master quote unquote library in Adobe's cloud. Mm-hmm. And then for my server where I have all the local files, I would have that just run Lightroom and download all the files to my server. And that way you can get your backup that you own. Correct. Right. So then now that I have this full, this location on a Windows computer that is running a backup to a drive and running a backup to Backblaze. And so now I have a local backup, a regular backup and a cloud backup and they're on Adobe servers. And so mm-hmm. now I'm like, and they're also uploading to Google photos. So, whoa, you're super backed up. I'm like so backed up. <laughs> <laughs> That's a different podcast. Yeah, sorry, dude. <laughs> That's too funny. Okay. Anyways, so like, I'm like, okay, I could do this, and so I'm like thinking about like, okay, how am I gonna do this? And like, what if I delete a thing here? And like, how does this all work? And I did a lot of testing. And what I found was, if I upload a file to Lightroom, and then I have my whatever computer could be my Mac could be my Windows computer, but in this case it's the Windows computer that's in the closet with my server, have it download all the originals. When it downloads those originals, if I delete them from Adobe, it does not delete them from that computer. Okay. Which mm-hmm. for me I think is a desired function. I mean you probably want more photos rather than fewer photos, right? Right. I was a little worried about like what that would like 
a non like have, having Adobe have the ability to delete things off of like my main library location. And so I'm like, okay, you know, what is this going to look like? And what's the workflow going to be? And all this sort of thing. And I, I like finally settled on it. I'm like, okay, here's one problem that I have to deal with right now. All of my photos that I take with my Fuji cameras, like that I'm going to shoot and like edit in raw. I have a folder structure in my photo library. That's like 2009, 2010, 2020, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And those folders are months, 01, 02, 03, blah, blah, blah. And within the month folders are just like casual pictures, JPEGs that I've shot or, you know, things off my iPhone or my Android phone or whatever. Sure. But if I went to like Big Bend or I went to like New York City or something and I took a bunch of pictures, those go into a folder like Father's Birthday 2020. Yeah, like a special event folder. Right. And that's where those live and that's where those RAWs are. And I don't mix my RAWs with my, the other structure. Never mix the RAWs. Never mix the, well, never mix the RAWs. So... That's how it is, and that's how I like it, and that's how my backups are. And if I decided to go, you know, full in on this Adobe Cloud situation, I have to let Adobe handle the folder organization of all my photos. And so I have to mm, not that, only that requires a lot of trust. I have to give up all of my current organization, which was kind of a mental hurdle for me. <laughs> and because the way that Adobe does it is year month day and so like it's like per day what photos were taken oh, that wow. day that's that's a lot and so it's it's going to mix all of my raws and like those special events and so now they're all smooshed together mm-hmm. and then it, it just it's just going to reorganize the whole situation i'm like am i okay with this but i mean it seems like all of that stuff is is sort of just your backup right i mean like when you're actually working on these things you're you're using the lightroom library to do it so you can filter and search and all that stuff and maybe right that, maybe that makes it okay i mean if you're if you're digging into these backups it feels more like it's because something has gone wrong you need to get a file back something like that exactly so it's like probably fine i just have to fully commit and so i was like okay well what i will do is i will create an album for every single one of those folders which if you didn't know, in Lightroom Classic, you can just select a chunk of folders and say, make an album out of these, and oh. then it'll just make all of them. Cool. So that was really, really quick. Yeah. And I was happy that that was really, really quick because I thought I was going to have to make 160 albums by hand. Yeah, when you when you <laughs> described that at first, I was wondering how much time it took. So. It did not take much time. That's good. So I kind of got over that. One of the features of Lightroom Classic that Lightroom Regular doesn't have is it stacks JPEGs and RAWs. And so if you shoot in both... You can let the JPEG be the preview for the image, mm-hmm. whereas in Lightroom Regular, it does not. And because I shoot Fuji, I want to have the JPEG and the RAW, and I'm not okay with like just shooting one or the other and dumping the other. So does it come in as two separate photos? So it's two separate images. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of like, that's a pain. it's kind of a problem, but not really. And so it's something that I just have to now live with. Yeah. As a result of moving into Lightroom regular. Mm-hmm. And I could like potentially use collections to like sort out the raws like yeah, move on the side or yeah. I don't know. Or maybe like if you're just searching for pictures, maybe you can filter that out somehow. Sure. So th- those are kind of like the most of like my big hurdles. And so I'm like, okay, I'm okay. I'm okay with the folder organization stuff. I fixed the collection thing. All right. So I got everything ready. So, okay. How do we, how do we do this? And the way that you migrate from Lightroom classic to Lightroom not classic is you have to have all of your photos and then you have to like say migrate my library. And then what it does is it copies all of your photos from wherever they are into the Lightroom folder. And then it uploads all of them from the Lightroom folder to Lightroom in the sky. Mm -hmm. 
And then it uh, eventually deletes them based upon how many gigs you've allowed for local storage and caching. So you have to have enough free space on your computer to hold your entire library before you can upload it. Twice. Well, the first one could be on like an external drive or something, right? You would think. (laughs) So what I did is we do a lot of video projects. And so like I have a lot of things in flight and I'm like, well, this project's 500 gigs. So I'm going to move that over here to the server. And this one's 300 gigs. So I'm going to move this one to an SSD. And so I cleared out like 1.2 terabytes of space. And then I moved like for a while in classic, I don't keep all my photos on my Mac. I keep some of them on an external drive, but it's it's between two drives. Mm-hmm. So I had to, to not lose all of my edits. I had to use Lightroom to move all of the photos to my Mac. So they're <laughs> like, all off of this other drive mm-hmm. and that took forever and then i go and, to like and how many files were like like what i have what capacity are we talking about i have sixty thousand photos like sixty one thousand something which is how much space uh, about five four to six hundred gigs okay yeah, roughly. That's, that's close enough just somewhere yeah. in that range so i do this and took forever and then i'm like all right lightroom let's do this thing <laughs> and so it was like okay ready you don't have enough space. You need 384 extra gigs of space. No, no. And I was like, I have, I have enough space to copy this thing twice. Like what, what's the problem? And so I cleared out more space. And so I have like a terabyte free and it's like, no, you need 384 extra gigs of space. (laughs) And so like, I just couldn't figure it out. And so like, I move all of the photos to the drive. I do it again. I move them all off the computer. And then I'm like, okay, now let's migrate. And it's like, you need, eight gigs of space. <laughs> freaking, freaking so I'm close. like, you know what? Uninstall Photoshop. <laughs> what do you think of that, Adobe? <laughs> so so I clear out eight gigs of space. I'm like, all right, go. It's like, you need eight gigs of space. <laughs> Seriously? So I had to move them all back to my computer. <laughs> and then I had to set the Lightroom location to the drive that I moved them from, which had less space available than my computer. And Lightroom was like, okay, <laughs> we can do this now. It's just the stupidest thing. I don't know if this is like an APFS problem and like with like snapshots and virtual whatever and like how memory reclaim happens on a Mac or if it's an Adobe problem, but I had to move my photos around so much. I probably got so much bit rot and like half my photos probably don't even work anymore because <laughs> like they were copied, then they were copied, then they were copied, then they were uploaded and now they're copying back down. <laughs> ridiculous side note can you imagine how hard this would have been if you hadn't gotten a two terabyte ssd in that computer oh my, it would have been literally impossible i would have had two 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 one terabyte ssds and like jeez. Oh, anyway so at this point i have i have on my server i have a copy a full backup copy of my photo library and i have the whole thing downloaded from lightroom and then on two separate one terabyte drives i have my full photo library so right now i still have it's like five copies of my photo library. <laughs> but anyway, so like I did all of this and like it bas- basically worked and like we're there. And then like I couldn't get it to download on my computer and then I couldn't like log into Lightroom. I mean, on my server, on my Windows computer. So I'd go through like this whole thing and then eventually like I got it to be able to like be open and work and download. And so as of today, I have fully re-downloaded my library to the server. Man, that's a long process. I mean, when did you start doing this? Like a week, like I think I started last Saturday or something. It's been, uh, geez, we're about, it's been about a week and a half or a week, something like that. That is a long time. It's, it's just been, it's been a lot, Daniel. Yeah. It's been a very, it's like a, it's a saga, but <laughs> we're here. We're fine. I'm finally in Lightroom land. So you're, you're on the, you're on the other side. Yeah. And so like I had to buy, I had to buy an extra terabyte of, of storage for, 
for Adobe, mm-hmm. and I'm gonna they have they have multiple plans, right? They have their like a terabyte plus Lightroom regular, which is ten bucks a month. Then they have Lightroom plus Photoshop, that's ten bucks a month. That's twenty gigs, and then they have Lightroom, Photoshop, and a terabyte, which is twenty dollars a month. Mm. And so right now I'm paying for the Lightroom plus Photoshop plus twenty gigs plus a terabyte separately, but I need to get off of both of those and just switch to just Lightroom regular because I don't really use Photoshop. Right. But I wanted to like make sure all of this worked. Yeah, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be messing with anything until you know you've got a good backup and you know everything's working smoothly. Yeah. But I, I'm sure that like I'm gonna do this and it's gonna go, oh we deleted all your photos. Lol. <laughs> gonna have to re upload. It's it's just been a lot. But now, now and I, and I have done this like I will import I can import the photos on my iPad. And there we go. Done. And you they don't were, have to do all these other steps of mm-hmm, also importing mm-hmm. them elsewhere yep, and all that. That's yep. great. So and that was that's the dream. That's yep. what we're trying to do. And so I think like this has solved a lot of that problem. That's good. And one of the other things that I like, I had this drive that I would just keep with me to have access to like all my photos if I need them. But now I can just download those photos onto my Mac from the cloud as I need them. And I don't have to keep, you know, 600 gigs or 500 gigs of photos on my computer all the time. I just bring them down just in time and I'm caching like 50 or 80 gigs onto my computer. I really like that. Like basically what you've discovered here is cloud services. You're <laughs> like, this is so cool. I don't have to carry a drive around with me. I can upload these files from anywhere and they all show up and then I can just download them on the Mac. Think, this is great. Think, why didn't you guys tell me about this sooner? <laughs> I think you understand my apprehension of wanting to like own the master library. <laughs> I do get where you're coming from, but I, I've felt that you have overcomplicated this for a long time, and I think you've simplified it at least to a small extent now, and I'm glad to see that. I am, I'm still not done, by the way. Uh, the last piece of this is the Google Photos component. Right, because which, I like, which is what you use to display like on the TV and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, right? I like having all my photos in Google Photos because it makes it easy to like look at them and stuff. Mm-hmm. That need has kind of become usurped by Lightroom because on my phone, I can just like open up Lightroom and all of my photos are there now. Mm-hmm. And that's great. And it has face recognition that's like terrible, like way not <laughs> as good as Google's. And, but I, I need them all in Google. And one of the problems that I had with my previous workflow is I used smart previews and somehow the smart preview folder ended up in my photo backup folder and Google photos uploaded a ton of smart previews, which do not render properly in Google mm-hmm. photos. They render as like gr- half gray boxes. Well, and plus it's like, an extra copy of files you already have. Yes, but it looks corrupted because half of the file is gray and <laughs> half of it's the picture. And I do I do like a photo sharing with, with my spouse. And so it's like all my photos are in her photos and all her photos are in my photos. And the whole thing has been polluted. Like they're both corrupted because of these Lightroom previews that I can't delete. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, I could nuke all of my photos, my Google photos, and then re-upload the whole thing to Google photos. But if I do that and then I, we keep sharing, the corrupted files are going to be shared back from her back into my yep. library. Yep. And so I have to nuke her Google Photos as well mm-hmm. in order to fix this problem. <laughs> <sighs> so that's the that's the last step is I have to I have to destroy Google Photos and then recommit to it and then rebuild all those albums. And that's like the final step of this that's whole probably process. That's like another week of work. Oh, jeez. I just, I needed to get everything in place before I made that step. So like I stopped sync before I started all this and I haven't restarted it. Yeah. It's just been a lot, Daniel. It sounds like it. This is quite the journey. Yes. <laughs> but I would say that so far, I do like being able to not have to worry about where like that acquisition process is happening. And that once it's in Lightroom, 
I can just edit it on my iPad yep. or on my phone. Yep. And Apple released those p- contact poster features, and mm-hmm. I have been having a blast <laughs> making contact posters for everybody. And since I have all my photos and all my edit tools like, right, right there. there on my phone, I'm just like, do, 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 bam. And I'm like, best poster ever. <laughs> it's great. So all this happened. Indeed. Which has been, it's been a journey. Yeah, I can tell. I, ha- I do have one question, though. I know that Lightroom Classic and Lightroom Regular sort of have different user interfaces and different sets of tools available. And I know that some people have used Lightroom Classic just because they feel like it has more features that they want. Have you found things that you miss? Yeah, the way that it displays and you work with histograms is just worse. And other than that, like some of the stuff has moved around and that's not so bad. But I do still think that from a pure, like all my tools and how to use it in editing within Lightroom regular is better. Mm. You can, sorry, Lightroom classic is better because you can like zoom in more and like the, the photo stacking feature. And I feel like the tools are maybe a little, a little more accessible and less kind of like made for mobile. And it just feels like Lightroom, not classic is like Lightroom for jokers and casuals. (laughs) And so I guess, I guess that's what I am now. Yeah. You're trusting the Adobe Cloud. You're using regular Lightroom. I mean, who who even are you anymore? Okay. So, but speaking of Adobe, okay, like there's a lot to this. I've I made this commitment. I am now like in this marriage with Adobe. Yep. Because I've like I've taken that extra step, and I'm like fully committed. My main, you know, they are now a f- part of my workflow. Like before, I like I we we like we knew each other, whatever. But now it's like a photo goes into my workflow. It is hitting their cloud before it hits my my what I would consider prime photo library location, which is the server. That's a lot of trust. It's a lot of trust. And this last quarter, Adobe made thirteen percent growth over over the previous quarter. They're just—I mean—you're talking about the size of their cloud, and that thirteen percent was you uploading all exa- those. That all is exactly that is exactly what it is. Well, they're making money hand over fist, Daniel. And so you know what they're going to do. You're going to raise prices. Oh, yeah. That's exactly what you do, right? <laughs> yeah. They're making money, just not fast enough. Mm-hmm. So it looks like for all of you Adobe suckers out there, I, like the individual apps, I think are going to go up like, what is it? $5 a month build annually. And then some of their other plans are going up like $2 a month. Yeah. Yeah. Man, that's a sh- it already feels so expensive. Why, why do they need to do this? I don't know. Let's see. Annual... Build monthly is going up five dollars a month if you're paying for all the apps. And if you're paying for one app, I think it's two dollars is what that essentially means. I don't think they're changing the cost of the photo stuff, and so I, that's not impacting me yet. But it is kind of a bummer to be like, oh yeah, I forgot I'm now beholden to this company for this convenience. Oh man, but you're gonna get some generative credits. You Am see, I? You see that? It says no, I don't see that. All the single app plans now include generative credits, Adobe Express, and what Adobe is, Firefly. What is what does that even mean? So AI costs money, and mm-hmm. that means that you can generate AI images with your credits. Oh, like that whole like AI autofill with Photoshop? I don't. Yeah, I don't. So that's that's what I'm a little confused on because that thing doesn't cost money as far as I know, but maybe they're planning and charge for it once it's out of beta. <laughs> I could see that happening. I don't know. I don't want to generate AI. <laughs> well, you've got the credits if you want them. I just, I want to shoot my pictures. I want to apply classic Chrome and I want to be done. You're, you're a simple man with simple requests. 
It's classic crime everywhere. Jeez. Okay. So that's that's a shame. Is this is this follow up? That's that's the whole Lightroom saga. We yeah. I, I made the switch. I did it. I thought I was going to lament more about it. Instead, I just you lamented quite a bit about it. There was a lot of back and forth, but not all of it was on air. Indeed. And so now we all know like where my where my photo backup workflow stands. Okay. <laughs> One more update. I think we talked about last time or the time before that I was thinking about becoming a film person. We did talk about that at some point. Yeah. I wanted to, I wanted, I thought that maybe I should get into like medium format mm-hmm. film. Yep. And so what I did is I committed to finishing the role of film that was in my Canon AE one program, mm-hmm. which has has half complete from two years ago. Mm-hmm. And then I found a role of film on my shelf that was at least two years old. Yeah. And from what I hear, that's the best way to store your film is just like on a shelf yeah. in a room temperature room mm-hmm. in the sun. Exactly. For, you know, two years. Yeah. yeah. At least I could have, I could have found it in a photo bag and it could have been like 30 years old. Mm. I don't Anything, know. Anything's possible. I have no idea. Yeah. Well-aged film. Yes. Finely aged film. And so I put that into the Minolta, whatever it is, 357, three, about 375 or, do you know what my Minolta is? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't got a clue. Minolta. You could say any numbers right now and I would just be like, yeah, yeah. Sounds right. 730 something, 733, 732, whatever. There's a seven and a five and a three maybe in it or a two. Okay. Point is, it's a Minolta camera. And so I put that in the other Minolta and then I went out to shoot all of them and I didn't even finish all the exposures and it's been like weeks. And I'm like, I don't even know if these cameras are working. My dad told me that the AE1 has like a light bleed problem. And so like that film's probably ruined. Mm -hmm. And I guess the Minolta should work. I have no idea. And so I gave up. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to get this film developed. I'm going to take this this half-done roll that's only got 24 pictures on it that's 36 count, and I'm going to take this one that's 24 that only has like 16, 18 photos on it, and I'm just, I'm just going to get them developed. Those people are going to think you don't know how to count. I thought this one had 36 in it had 24. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was like, oh, this one's almost done. Nope, not even close. <laughs> it's hard to take all of your pictures when you shoot film. You just do a burst, man. I don't know what it is. Like when I shoot digital, I'm like, oh, I'm just going to go take some casual pictures. A thousand pictures. When I shoot film, it's like four. <laughs> and I don't know if it's because like I'm really bad at focusing or that there's like just too much weight to it. Yeah. I mean, you're spending money every time you click that shutter. So like a roll of, of Ektar 100 Kodak that is 36 shots is like 12 bucks. Okay. And then to get it developed... Where I got it developed, uh, and they so like they developed it and scanned it to 2K resolution, which I like, guess isn't great, but whatever. It was like ten ish dollars, and so we're talking like twenty ish dollars for thirty six photos. Yeah. So like fifty seven ish, sixty cents a photo. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's real money, Daniel. Yeah, it is real money. I mean, it could be worse, but but it's real money. Yeah. So I got them developed, and what I learned because before I got them developed, my takeaway from shooting film was this is like a waste of time. I don't like not being able to see the photos ahead of time (laughs) or after for a while. And I have to like manually focus and I can't like look down through the viewfinder. I have to like hold it up to my eye Mm -hmm. and I'm like 75 feet tall. And so I'm like doing this like squatty dance in order to It's either that or it's going to look like a drone shot. Yeah, exactly. I don't want to like take a bunch of pictures of the top people's heads. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's just, I haven't really enjoyed that whole experience. Yeah, I was carrying this extra camera in addition to my regular mm-hmm. camera. You you went uh, you flew in a, a private plane. I did last weekend, 
And you took the film camera doing that. <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> so you had two cameras in this tiny little plane. Yep. Yeah, I did. Yeah. So what I what I got undeveloped, and like going into this, I'm like, I don't love it. Coming out of it, looked at those photos, and I really like how that Ektar uh, 100 looks. It looks really good. Feels like such a meme. Daniel, you see, whenever you shoot film, like taking a step back here, when you shoot digital, like you have you have a sensor array with like all the different colors on it. And if red light hits a green pixel, it doesn't show red. It shows nothing. And then it has to assume that it was red. And like, you don't know what's real. But when you shoot on film, it's a chemical process. And so like, say you're taking a picture of a beautiful sunset or flowers or like hair that is like red and blonde that kind of like meshes all together. Those like blending of colors, it's more true on film. Daniel. I don't know about all this. <laughs> no, it's all true. I feel like you're about to start talking about micro contrast. Daniel, have you heard of micro contrast? Uh, we're not going there. We're not going there. <laughs> Let me explain X trans to you again. Let's let's not. <laughs> so uh, you like the pictures you got back? I really like the colors. I sent them to you. Weren't they great? I mean, half of them were in black and white. Okay, so I didn't know that that role was black and white. The other thing that I learned is that whenever you're shooting on a photo camera, that a film camera that has like an automatic mode, that the little thing that says the ISO on it isn't just like for fun. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me more. It's because it's because when you shoot in an auto mode, sometimes you want to push or pull your your film, and so like what you'll do is like say it's ISO 100 film, you can push it and have the, and tell the camera that it's actually like 320 film or 400 film speed and then shoot it like it's 400 and then when you develop it you expose it longer in the chemicals and that's pushing the film and you can so you can like stretch your exposure out a little bit by under or overexposing that's like pushing and pulling hmm. and it creates like a different effect and you can get like you can make the film look different and behave differently and so some people will say like this one right here looks really really good if you push it two stops hmm. and so I accidentally pushed my shots on the Minolta and I didn't know it and I didn't tell them. <laughs> and so they all came back like super white and they were black and white. And I was like, this is, this is not what I was expecting. <laughs> so I had to like go into Lightroom and like take my histogram curve and kind of like set the top and the bottom points of it, mm -hmm. like tighten it up on the thing. And then like, it looks okay. Mm -hmm. Oh boy. I, I'll say out of the pictures you showed me, I know you had some that I think were from like two years ago from the color roll. Mm -hmm. And I mean, yeah, the colors looked really good. I would say surprisingly good to me. But I mean, overall, like it just seems like, you know, it's hard to get stuff. I know it's hard to get stuff in focus. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of them had really soft focus. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of grain. Oh, there's so of grainy. Noise. They, to me, they all look like you took a picture with a digital camera and then you heavily applied Instagram filters to them. You know what? It looks like that to me too. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, and and honestly, like that's that's why the juice doesn't feel worth the squeeze to me because you have all these problems of like you've got to buy film, you've got to get film developed, you have to have this like camera that's manual focus, you can't see the pictures, like all that stuff. You have all that, and I mean, I can see how people like the result, but I just feel like you could get a similar result with a Fuji camera and you know putting some filters on. I would think that you could probably get a better result. But I guess like if you're going for that look, I don't know. It's like they do like the pictures look terrible. 
from like a, a sharpness and a like how like how much detail do you get? And I don't know if that's because like they were scanned at 2K and I'm used to looking at things that are like, you know, 6,000 pixels wide and these are 3,000 pixel wide. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Or if it's like just how much grain or if it was because of the age of the film. And so I, like, I went through all this stuff. I went out, picked up my negatives and you know what I did? Bought three more rolls of film. <laughs> <laughs> Not giving up yet, huh? No, I just... The seeing the pictures encouraged me enough to keep giving it a try. Interesting. And so, so you're you're wanting to see basically if using newer film makes a difference or yes. so that film is in my refrigerator and I'm replacing the battery in my AE one program, which was turns out at least fifteen years old. <laughs> probably thirty. It said yeah. Radio Shack on it. So So maybe that'll make a difference too. Sure. And I think that I was I had to like tweak I had to mess with my my fifty mil lens that I had shot all these with because uh, the catch component, like whenever you attach an FD lens to an old Canon camera, there's a, a switch in it that has to hit in order to release the aperture. And I think the aperture wasn't releasing. And so interesting. I may have accidentally shot all of those at 1.8. Mm. And anyways. Accidentally shot wide open. <laughs> yeah, sure. So it's, this has been a journey mm -hmm. and you guys are all on this journey with me. I'm addressing the listeners right now directly. You're on this journey with me. <laughs> <laughs> you can't get off <laughs> whether you like it or not you're stuck with us oh geez so that's where i am i'm gonna shoot i'm gonna shoot uh 800 speed cine cine still it's tungsten weighted or whatever and so that's gonna look delicious and then i'm gonna shoot another ektar uh 100 for kodak and then i'm gonna shoot some porta 400 interesting yep so are you gonna do all of that with the ae1 or are you gonna yeah. use both cameras i think i'm gonna do all that with the ae1 i may i may put some of it in the minalta but I am dubious based upon the pictures that came out of the Minolta, whereas the Canon, I was shocked that those actually turned out. So yeah. okay. I'm going to probably run all that through the Canon. And that one, I know that the lenses are in a little better condition. Yeah. Except for that 28 mil. I think there's fungus in there, but that's probably going to make it even better. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you won't be able to see it through all the grain anyway. Yep. So point is, if these three rolls turn out and I love them, I'm probably going to get some developer agent and start developing my film. <laughs> so you're you're on the precipice right now. <laughs> it's happening. Like you're moving closer to the to the edge. You haven't quite taken the leap, but you're getting there. I'm this close. I'm this close. If if this goes really well, whoo boy. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to have to like buy me a 1.4 FD lens. That's like 35 millimeter, and I'm going to have to buy me some chemicals. Oh man. Mhm. Mm <laughs> okay. Well, this this is just been a lot of a lot of not follow up. But like one more thing, <laughs> are you familiar with the uh, what is it called the the sunny sixteen rule? Is that what it's called? That sounds made up to me. So no, I'm not familiar with it. Dang, you don't know this? I don't know. Okay, this. if we still had the photography tip corner, this would go squarely in that corner. Yeah, I think we lost that when we picked up the film corner. Yes, that and was Lightroom corner. That was deprecated. Uh -huh. And so, but if if we were still doing that, this would be part of it. Okay. Okay. The concept here is that if you're shooting in 35 millimeter, if you set your shutter speed to the inverse of your film speed, so say you're shooting on at ISO 100, you would set your shutter speed to one over 100. Okay. ISO 400, mm -hmm. one over 400. If you do that, and it's a bright sunny day outside, you can set your aperture to 16, F16, and it will be perfectly exposed. Interesting. So you could... 
you could i mean f 16 is pretty uh that's pretty deep focus but i guess you could extrapolate from this exactly yeah. so you're like all right 16 i want to back this thing off to f4 that's five stops move my shutter speed up five stops yeah there you go very interesting yeah so if you don't have a light meter because i haven't even bought a light meter daniel i downloaded an app on my phone <laughs> but i haven't bought a light meter yet i'm not like all the way in i'm getting close yeah you're getting there but you're not there yet but i'm gonna start doing i'm gonna start doing stop math i'm gonna get really so good you, at you, it. you do stuff like this if you don't have a camera that just you know tells you what to do right yeah yeah which up to this point i mean i'm basically been a casual yeah and, and now you're stepping into this new world. Mm-hmm. You've got Lightroom regular and you've got film. Yep. Uh, a match made in heaven. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <man. sighs> That's it. That's Those are all my updates. That's it, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that was, was a lot. It's been an hour. Where are we? <laughs> no. no. Let's let's talk about some stuff that's, you know, a little bit more current. Things okay, cool. Made this century. Sure. Yeah. So the, the film that I bought was made this century. Ah, uh, that's yeah. And I so guess, and so was Lightroom. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a technicality, Lucas. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so it looks like Sigma's released a new lens, huh? Yeah, I think we talked about this as a rumor, but it's uh, for, they're coming out with this for L, E, and XF mount. Mm-hmm. So that's Fuji, Leica slash Panasonic, and Sony. Yep, and it's a ten to a, ten to eighteen. Is it F2.8? F2.8, that's right. And they're selling this as the lightest APS-C ultra-wide zoom. Interesting. Because what are the options do you have in that range, I guess? Like, what what is this competing against? It depends upon what mount you're on, but Tamron has an 11 to 22.8. Then they sell for all, basically all the same mounts. You can Mm -hmm. get it for L and E and whatever. It's kind of, that one's kind of like in the same family as that 17 to 70 that we love. Exactly. And this... 10 to 18 is in the same family as the 18 to 50 Mm, 2.8. But what's pretty obvious is that the Tamrons are built towards like more of optical quality and they with ignoring the size. That 17 to 70 is huge. Yeah, that's ridiculously huge. The 11 to 20 isn't enormous, but it is maybe like 200 grams heavier. I'm just guessing. But it's, it is larger than this Sigma 10 to 18. Mm-hmm. And then the 18 to 55 is very compact. And so if you're like in the, I need small APS-C lenses because I shoot Fuji film, this 10 to 18 looks really promising. Yeah. And Fuji has, uh, they have an 8 to 16? They do. And that is probably their largest regular size lens. It's also super expensive, isn't it? It's the, it's like $1,800. Yeah, that's yeah. pretty high. It's, but when, when you're looking at this and like looking at some of the reviews of these new lenses, I think that this 10 to 18 is a fantastic ad. I really like having having an option that goes all the way out to 10 millimeters. That's super wide, 2.8, fantastic. And it's small and light. These are all, all great things. It's like a 57 millimeter filter thread. Yeah. And, well, 67. and that's important too, is that it can, you can put regular filters on that lens. When you get to some of these wide lenses, you sometimes see like a fisheye mm-hmm. type thing and you yeah. can't actually get a normal filter on there. I think it is 67. I'm mixing these up with the uh, those other things that are on our list here. Those those sniper 1.2s. Mm-hmm. That's 58. Yeah, it's 67 for the Sigma. And but yeah, like you can use regular filters. It's small. It's compact. It does seem like with the low price of like 500 bucks and the small size, you are losing something here. Like the ghosting is not as under control as your other options. Mm-hmm. It like it's not quite as sharp in the corners. The 
they cut costs on things like the number of aperture blades. I think it's only like seven aperture blades. And while you're not doing like, you know, low depth of field things for, you know, your, your ultra wide, whatever you will, like you're going to stop down. And if you end up getting specular highlights, like here's some water that's going to like shine, or there's some lights in the background where you're taking like a cityscape or something, those are going to be pentagonal in one way. They're gonna you're gonna see those blades because it doesn't have eleven or nine aperture yeah, blades. Interesting. So like it feels like you're like there's some cost cutting going on in order to hit this price point. Yeah, like if you wanted the the absolute best image quality, that Fuji eight to sixteen is probably gonna mm-hmm. be better. Yeah. So like in the world of XF, this is one of those like more clear cut cases of more money gets you mm-hmm. more better lens yeah. because it's like the 10 to 18 is like whatever, 500, 550. And then the Tamron 11 to 11 to 20 is like 800 ish. And then the Fuji is up here like 1800 yeah. and you're going to get that much better of a lens at each of those steps. That's interesting. Like I would, I would wager that like the Fuji eight to 16 is twice as good yeah. as the 11 to 20. I, you know, I like having those different options though. I remember reading an interview recently with the, uh, one of the, I think it might have been the CEO of Sigma or somebody high up at Sigma, and you know he kind of pointed out the way that the way that all these companies make lenses is they they kind of start with like here here are our goals for this lens, and it's clear with that eighteen to twenty that one of their goals was to make it small and light, right? And you're obviously going to trade something off with that. You know they probably had a price target in mind and they had like a size target, and you know sure if they had made something the the expense and size of the Fuji lens, they probably could have done better. We know Sigma's optical quality is generally very good, but that's kind of like, that's not the formula they were trying to go for with this lens. I think they made the right choice. They're letting the OEM type lenses be kind of the top of the line. Yeah. In a way, like those Sigma art lenses are another another thing. They're fantastic. But, you know, they have this like lower level line of like, here's our small compacts for travel and like, let's make those trade-offs. And I think this is a great add to the lineup. And, I mean, you go back a year and a half, two years, not even that long. I think like 18 months. If your ultra-wide options, if you were shooting XF, were very limited. You were getting like a manual focus, like Rokinon, if you mm-hmm. wanted like 12 mil. And like there's there was nothing. It was like the 8 to 16, and then there was like 16 millimeter. That was basically it. Right. And now we have the fantastic Viltrox 13 millimeter 1.4. And now we have three ultra-wide zooms, so two added to the one that was already there. And it's like, man, it's now you have all these great ultra wide options for APS-C where like, I mean, usually that's your Achilles heel for smaller sensors is like you just don't get as good of images and like have as wide of options. And so, yeah, it's really cool to see these. It still feels like there's not, there's only one pro level lens in this area for Fuji, but it is kind of cool to see. Yeah. I mean, I'd be interested in it. I've often felt like I'd rather have the Sigma 18 to 50 over the Tamron 17 to 70 just because of the size. And I mean, maybe if I was doing real estate or something where I'm not going to be traveling a lot, maybe then I'd prefer the bigger Fuji lens. But, you know, if I wanted something to take on a trip and be able to just get, you know, wide angle shots of like a landscape or something, I think I'd prefer this just because it's so small. What are the crop sensor L-mount cameras? Do any exist? I like... I've, I've just looked up lmount.com and I'm looking at all of the lmount and like they make it for APS-C. Like you can use APS-C for L. But I think that all of Leica's stuff, maybe the Leica CL is it. Yeah, there it is. The Leica CL is APS-C. Interesting. That's why whenever they're selling this, they're saying Leica 
L mount because Leica has one camera that's APS-C that takes L mount and then every other L mount camera is full frame. That's got to be that's got to be rough for that one Leica person because you're I guess you were just buying Leica lenses anyways you don't care. Yeah. Who Okay, so now this now that I think about it, this is weird. <laughs> like you have a Leica camera and like you're spending Leica money on Leica lenses. Why are you going to go out and buy a $500 Sigma ultra wide? <laughs> this is like when we saw those uh, cook SP three lenses that they made for like the Leica M mount. Yeah. Like, <laughs> wait, who's buying this stuff? That's in the opposite direction. Yeah. That would make more sense. Yeah. I wonder if you can put those full, like if you had like an S five Mark two, is there a crop yes. mode? Yeah. You, you can shoot in crop mode. So maybe mm-hmm. that's what it's for, but that like, why would you want to shoot in crop mode? And you got like, why not just use a full frame lens? That, yeah. Like if you, <laughs> If you're going for a wide shot, yeah, why would you want to go to a crop mode? full frame at 16 millimeters, and it's you're like the distortion and all that stuff is going to look so much better. Yeah. <laughs> Strange. Oh, jeez. Anyways, I'm, I'm kind of excited. Yeah. I, I thought that maybe, Good maybe there's room in my life for something like this. Yeah, room in your Peak Design bag. Well, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Especially that 45 liter. <laughs> Not sponsored. Not sponsored. <laughs> okay. We hadn't mentioned it until now. Well, this is actually secretly an Icon cast. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Nikon ZF, Daniel. This is the first camera in I don't know how long that they've released that I actually heard about. Really? <laughs> you didn't hear about the Z8? <laughs> okay, okay. I guess I did hear about the Z8. Come on. Yeah. Jeez. But this one didn't fly under the radar the way some Nikon releases do. This is pretty cool. It is pretty cool. Like I got a lot of notes here. Okay. A lot of things to run through. I think this is a really exciting camera. Yep. Let's hear it. But I want you to first look at the two photos that I have here in here in the show notes. And see him. Uh-huh. Uh, can you tell me which one is the X-T4 and which one is the Nikon camera, ignoring the part where the one with the lens has a Nikkor on it? Ah, uh, yes, ignoring that part. Yep. These do look very similar. They've both got the same, kind of the same dial configuration on the top. I can see some few differences that I'm sure we'll talk about. But, I mean, that, they look pretty similar. The, the grip on the X-T4 is bigger. But from the top, looks looks a lot like a Fuji. I just, I feel like you can't you can't talk about the Nikon ZF without talking about Fujifilm. Yeah, because they clearly were like, "Wow, people love Fujis because of how they look." Mm-hmm. Let's just make a cool looking camera. But to me, like the other huge selling point of Fuji is the JPEGs, and I'm like, can you have one without the other? I, I don't know. To me, they're so married in my mind of like this style camera with shooting like really cool looking JPEGs that I don't understand yeah. divorcing the two. But I guess I guess saying it out loud sounds stupid. I mean, you know, people shoot on Nikon cameras all the time and like the pictures they get. So this is just that and in a different form factor. I mean, so for people that haven't seen the camera, can't see it. It's it's basically a retro styled full frame Nikon camera. Right. And it, and it looks a lot like a Fuji X-T4 or something like mm-hmm. in that range. So it is it is smaller than the other Nikon cameras that are currently out. So it, like compare it to a Z6, which is probably one of their smaller bodies. It's it's smaller than that. Yeah. It looks like a film camera. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's a very small grip, like almost almost no grip to speak of. It basically really. doesn't have a grip. Yeah. Which interestingly, they partnered with Small Rig to make a grip for this mm-hmm. that mounts to the bottom, yeah, fits like with the battery plate, thing. and then like has a grip. That's cool. Yeah, so you can like add your grip later or whatever. Yeah. Uh, that's, a, that's a clever solution. Yeah. So if you're like if you're looking at the top of this, and I know that 
the people who listen to this podcast know everything about Fuji because just I mean he, they probably wouldn't have stuck around this long if they didn't care about Fuji. <laughs> and so like you're looking at the top on the left side of the view like cent- center viewfinder. This is not a range style camera. It's traditional SLR style where the viewfinder is, even though it's mirrorless. On the left of it, in similar to Fuji fashion, you have your your ISO. Mm-hmm. To the right of the viewfinder, you have your shutter speed, and these are both locking. They have little buttons on them to lock those in place. Right. And then you have your exposure wheel on the far right. So those are your three dials. Mm-hmm. And then where it deviates from Fuji is there is a little f-stop screen, like a liquid. It is a liquid crystal display. Yeah, that's an LCD. It's an LCD, yeah. but it's not like what you're thinking when you say LCD. It's not a full color LCD. It's like a yeah, I mean, like like an old school watch. Yeah, and that shows the f-stop. And just and it's like literally just the number, just the number. It's like F, and then it has a number. So that's cool. That's different. And then what gets me is over here on the left side. There's a PSAM switch. Yeah. So is that is that part of the ISO dial, or is that a separate switch underneath it? There's like a, a like you know how the wheels sometimes have thing like levers underneath that kind of click okay. through. Mm-hmm. And so it looks like you can still set this thing in PSAM, but then use your single dial to set the the whatever operation and so like if you put it into that idea i mean like it's cool but i just uh, so i guess that's like that's a big difference because now we'll get this closer there isn't an a on any of these any of these dials so on fuji you can you can just turn your iso to a and now you're yeah, it's just going to yeah, auto. You've locked out your ISO to... Yeah, and yeah. so like you can kind of set yourself in aperture priority or shutter speed or some combination of the two. You can like lock your shutter and then like ISO and aperture modulate, which is kind of almost like a program function or I think Canon calls that like TV. I don't know. Yeah. But for the Nikon, you have to use the PCM dial and then so you have to like purposely put it in manual before you start modulating but all you your know, dials. You, you say that, but I think that this is faster because if you... Like let's say you're in aperture priority and you want to shift in the manual like man sounds like a car but like let's say you want to shift you've got to move multiple dials off of a right like maybe you have iso on auto maybe you have something else on auto like you've got to move multiple things whereas with this like you can just switch whatever mode you're in and that's like that's conceptually like changing all those dials to auto or off of auto i don't know daniel i I think it's interesting as an xt3 user I can turn those dials pretty fast. I'm like, <laughs> I only turn them both at the yeah, same like time. Def- like, deafeningly loud. Yeah. Yeah. You're in a quiet room and you see you like, clicking sh- over there. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> I, I think this is definitely, I think it's interesting. Yeah. It's a cool alternate approach that I was not expecting out of this, uh, out of this camera. Yeah. Yeah. It's neat to see uh, new ideas and stuff like that. So no grip, cool dials, full frame. So they had the ZFC before. Mm-hmm. And, and now, full- yeah, ZFC was APS-C and this yeah. is full frame. Full frame. Cool. I'm seeing a little uh, little red record button on the top. Yeah, there too. shoots video, man, and she shoots shoots decent video. So this is this is basically the Z6 Mark III. Previously, so like whenever the ZFC came out, they came out with the Z50, and then they're like, "Here's the Z50, but in a retro body." And now it's happening backwards. It's like, "Here's the Z6 Mark III in a retro body," and then the Z6 Mark III is maybe going to come later. Yeah. I would be shocked if the Z6 Mark III was not a reskinned ZF. Yeah, because I mean, this seems like a design that some people would be into, but not everyone's going to want this. Some people are going to want a traditional camera. For sure. I think that if you're shooting anything professional or doing anything more than anything that requires a larger lens, like you would not want to put a knocked on this thing. <laughs> Could you imagine? It weighs like four times as much as the camera. It'd be crazy. 
You know, like if you're shooting telephoto, like you're holding the lens, not the camera at that point. And so I think that, you know, for the people who need it, this is, this is not filling the hole of the Z6 Mark III, but I think it's like an interesting addition. If you're already shooting Nikon and you're mm-hmm. like, I want a, a smaller camera for travel that's like, you know, maybe more fun to shoot or, you know, I can fit my bag easier, but takes the same batteries. I mean, like, this is a cool, like, camera for your camera almost. Yeah. What kind of screen do you have on this thing? Is it like a flip screen or? It is a, it is a fully articulating flippy screen. So you could use it for like doing some selfies or vlogging sure. or something. I mean, it, it does seem like it'd be a good trip camera. Yeah, I think so too. I do, I do feel like the flippy screen is a little weird choice for something that's photo, feels like it's photo first. Yeah. But like they didn't shy away from the video features. Mm-hmm. It's not like any better than the Z6 Mark II. Cause like if you're going to shoot 4K 60 at crops, but you can still shoot like 10 bit, 4K 30, 4K 24. Yeah. And, you know, like it, it has acceptable video specs. I mean, like, you'd be able to use this as a B camera for something else. Sure. Yeah, yeah totally. I mean, like, you could probably use it as an A cam, yeah. I guess. Well, but I'm just thinking, like, if you already have, like, a, you know, a bigger video camera, you know, you've got, like, a Z8 used for video or something, you want to get this as a travel camera, it can kind of serve, like, the mm-hmm. video specs are good enough that it can serve double duty as, like, right. the B cam. Yeah. So, other other kind of really cool things here. It's really cool. Mm. Interesting things. It's the same sensor as the Z6 Mark II, from what I understand. So it's 24-ish megapixels. But they, they're bringing the processor down from the Z8 and the Z9. And so you're going to get all those autofocus features and all wow. those cool, like, Nikon, Nikon Yeah, deals. we talked about some of that stuff. That's mm-hmm. impressive to see. Yeah. So, like, that's cool. And that's why it's like, oh, this is obviously, like, a Z6 with a different skin on it. Mm-hmm. It's cool that it uses the same batteries. Uh, let's They condensed everything down. And in doing so... They didn't want to get rid of two card slots. So they kept two cards, but one of them is a micro SD. <laughs> I don't know if I can think of any other camera that's done that. Mm-mm, not a $2,000 camera for yeah. sure. <laughs> that's interesting. So it's it's kind of kind of troublesome in that the micro SD is not UHS-2. And it also goes in the bottom, right? Yeah, they go next to the battery. So yeah, you have to open but up is the that both cards or just yes, the... both cards. They basically sit on top of each other. I see. Okay. And so like if you're trying to do like burst stuff, or you're trying to shoot video and you need like a V60 or like mm-hmm. a UHS-2 type for like higher data rates, you basically have no backup options because the micro, micro SD isn't going to be able to keep up yeah. with the full-size SD card. But like in a pinch, maybe you can like dump your JPEGs to the micro and put your RAWs on the main or something. Yeah, I mean, if nothing else, like I kind of think it's cool just to have some built-in storage in your phone. Sure. Or sorry, in your camera, you know, like could just have that, leave that in there all the time. Yeah. And you've always got that if you need it. Kind of neat. Yeah, I think it's a nice, it's nice that they didn't just say sorry, one card, they went out of their way to like put a second card in this because they know people yeah. care. Ha- having it in the bottom is not great. You know, if you have it on a tripod or something, then you're not going to be able to remove that card. Right. It's a little bit of a pain. But I mean, they, they had to compromise on something with how small this is. Mm-hmm. Sacrifice that you make. Yeah. A few other fun features. Besides all the colors, you can get this thing like green or red or orange or teal or black. I wish more camera companies would do that. Like, I mean, just give me two options, three options, something like that. They give you like seven. I mean, I love it's it. great. I love it so much. Like, yeah. if I wasn't so into like Fuji color world, I would be like, man, this is for me. Like, this <laughs> is my camera. Except the XS2S takes way better video, even though that's not the retro. I guess like, well, XC5. I would still pick an XC5 over this because it's 40 yeah. megapixels. That's we're, we'll talk about that in a second. Look at these colors, Daniel. Look at them. No, look at them. Look at them real hard. Which one would you pick? There's a lot of good colors there. I'm, you know, I'm kind of partial to olive green. I, I'm wearing an olive green shirt right now. There you go. And I like that color a lot, but man, that orange looks good. 
The but orange then there's one. also the blue and the red. I mean, all honestly, these are these are good colors. They all look really good. I love how bright the orange is. Yeah. I feel like I would go with the red. But the blue also looks really good. <laughs> They're all so good. Anyways, they really you, are. I, like, what? come on, Fuji. Like, look at this and do this. This is great. It's great. It's so good. Okay. So the colors are fantastic. It doesn't look like it comes in silver, but I'll let that slide because you can get it in like six different colors. Yeah. Okay. So that's super cool. Another bit. They don't have film simulations, but there's a dedicated black and white mode. Like there's a little dial and it goes from video to photo to black and white. <laughs> it's like it's like you're shifting into ultra hipster gear. You know, Dude, man, they they know who their market is. Apparently. They're like they know their their mo- that monocram monocram culture. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep, that. Yep, and so like, like get your Sony Bros over here. And they got their S and Q mode on that switch, and then you got your Nikon guys over here. They don't need slow. And qu- they don't need slow and, and quit. Going into black and white. B and W. That's what they I call can't, it. I can't say that I understand that lifestyle. You just don't get it, Daniel. Apparently, we've talked about harsh contrast in black and white photos. Apparently, I mean, I shot but a whole roll of film in black and you, white. You lose the 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 light advantages. I mean, it's not a monochrome sensor. So I'm, I don't know. Okay, that's a, that that is know. that is true. Anyways. They got a black and white mode. <laughs> All right. Last, last few, few interesting things here. It has really cool IBIS mm-hmm. and not just like, oh, the IBIS does eight stops. That's really cool. The it's five axis, whatever, but normal, normal, like IBIS in a camera, it is like the the center of the frame. It is pivoting around that in order to stabilize the footage. Sure. And like, you know, center of the lens, center of the, of the frame, like that's going to be the sharpest point, blah, blah, whatever. Yeah. What this one does is it takes the focus point and it pivots the sensor around the focus point. Oh. And so if you put the box like in the top right or whatever, it's going to try to move the sensor around that point in order to stabilize rather than just the center of it. Wow. I would love to see how that mechanism works. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Yeah. And so like they're I can saying, see how it'd be better too. Yeah. So they're like, you're going to get better stabilization. And like, so you like do this really cool thing. And then on top of that, they're bringing that pixel shift that we're seeing in Micro Four Thirds up to full frame. You can get 96 megapixel stills. Wow. That's pretty cool. Yeah. This is like a full featured, ready to go camera. Yeah. Scott. I mean, it sure seems like it. it's not just a toy. Yeah. ZA level autofocus, full frame, 26 megapixels. Mm-hmm. You got all this cool IBIS stuff. This is a great. This is a great little camera. Yeah, sure looks like it. Yeah, maybe not ergonomically the best thing for some people, mm-hmm. but who needs a grip? That's what I say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you we want to be able to show off that color. Mm-hmm. So. Exactly. You're gonna hold the lens anyway. <laughs> and what did you say the price on this was? Uh, two two thousand. Two thousand dollars. Okay. That's right. It's basically an S five Mark II X. Almost as expensive as the next one hundred B. That's that's actually true. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't come with a lens. So $200 more than an X-T5, which I think is the closest competitor to this. I think you're probably right. So what do you you think, Daniel? Like, what's what's weird about this? What's good about it? Like, what do you think? I mean, I think it's great. It's it's like clearly Nikon had good success with the ZFC and they wouldn't have made this camera if they hadn't. So there's some kind of market out there for it. And... I mean, I I think it's great to have more options like this. Like, I've really liked that Fuji has off- offered their cameras in, like, a variety of form factors with similar features. So, like, you know, on Fuji, you can get the X-T5 and the X-H2, which have the exact same sensor, same processor and stuff, but one's PSAM, one's uh, not. 
and you know you get to pick do you want something that's retro styled or not and this is basically that for nikon you get to you get to choose whether you want all these features in a retro styled body or in like a modern style uh body and that's a cool option i mean if i had another nikon camera i could totally see getting something like this as like a fun you know travel b camera type thing you know, it'd feel different. It would feel like I'm really getting something unique compared to a normal Nikon camera. And I mean, maybe it's obvious, like I shoot on Fuji, so like I'm maybe more predisposed to like this kind of thing, but I think it's great to have that option for people. You, you shoot on Fuji, but we both know you're, you're a Panasonic guy. Yeah, I, I, I do feel that way sometimes. <laughs> I'm sort you're of just, just borrowing you're, Fuji. Yeah, you're, you're sojourning in Fuji land. Yeah. We're happy that you're here. Yeah, this is my midlife crisis. Yeah. <laughs> Fuji, the equivalent of a sports car <laughs> or a bad earring. <laughs> anyway, so I, man, like, I think this is really cool. And I'm, I'm super happy that Nikon's making these cameras. I think that they really appeal to a lot of people and like aesthetically, they're fantastic. I think it's weird in that they had, they came out with the new 40 millimeter F. 2.8 mm-hmm. that's kind of like a pancake style lens yeah, right all the photos are with that lens on there because it makes sense but i mean you imagine any of their other lenses like any of their primes any of their zooms like nikon's the zoom company they have a like a, a, a trinity of zooms in like four different types like, here's our small light 2.8s here's our expensive heavy s series 2.8s and here's our four. they have so many zooms Daniel. Yeah. they have like they're the telephoto company they have like way better telephoto options than canon like it's Sports and wildlife. Here's yeah. an icon. Imagine putting like a 600 millimeter telephoto lens in this camera. You're be holding the lens, not the camera. <laughs> it's like the their lens ecosystem just doesn't seem to agree with this style camera. Yeah. And I find that like a little weird. And then like the the third party lens support for Nikon is available. Like they opened up the mount, but it seems like Tamron and Sigma have been kind of slow to come to it. Like mm-hmm. you can't buy a series of art lenses for, for Z mount yet. Yeah. And so it's just... I don't know. It it just feels weird. I think that I think that if you were on the ZFC, you can go buy those that trinity of of primes from Sigma, probably. That you know the twenty three and the thirty three and the fifty six. Yeah, they're something re- reasonably sized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they, proportional. They, it makes sense and like it fits with like this style and like whatever. I feel like you only have two lens options here for this camera, or and otherwise you're using like giant zooms. Yeah, it's kind of strange. I mean, it, it kind of feels like maybe they're picturing people just buying this camera with that 40 millimeter lens and, and mostly just using that setup. But then like, why do you need to buy a Nikon if you're just going to use that one lens? Like if you're not getting it to fit in with your Nikon ecosystem. I think the sell on that is that it's, you like you bought it with, use it with the 40 mil and like you have your Nikon kit and like in a pinch, now you have the second camera that you can apply into that situation. Sure. But then also it's like your cool little travel cam. Yeah, and I guess, I guess all your menus will be familiar and all that stuff. The colors will kind of match. Well, I mean, as you know, I'm related to a Nikon shooter. Indeed. And he was he was really into this camera. Which I was I was surprised he knew that this camera existed. I wasn't. I th- he's He's got his pulse or his finger on the pulse of the Nikon world. No kidding. And he's like, Lucas, do I buy, do I buy an ultra-wide zoom? Which he loves ultra-wide zooms. Or do I buy a Nikon FC? Not FC, Nikon ZF. Got it wrong. And I was like, man, that's a tough choice. Do you need a travel camera or an ultra-wide zoom? I can see him using ultra-wide zoom. I've seen him use them. Look at <laughs> 
Yeah, this close. It's great. Loves it. But he's like ready to give that up to get a get a ZF. Man, ZF. That's that's uh that's pretty telling. What do you yeah. think what do you think his reasons are? I think he's like, he's it's, like it's, it's, it's smaller, it's lighter, it's cool, it's retro. He would use it with his what is that? What is that Tamron Super Zoom? It's, like, it's like, like a, a like a four to three hundred. Yeah, it's like a four to three. I think it's three fifty. Four to three fifty, just super duper zoom. It's like f eight to f twenty. <laughs> like that's his lens. He's like, why not just bring one lens? I'm like yeah. because it's the size of a boat. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what he would put on this thing. And I think that he's not the only one. When I think about Nikon people in my head. They're all shooting on 24 to 200s that weigh six pounds. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, that just doesn't fit with this camera. It's just, it really just reshapes my whole concept of Nikon. Now they're hip and they're cool. And like, I don't even know what's happening. Yep. Yeah. You're, you're very confused about your feelings right now. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. I'm very mm -hmm. confused. Yeah. Okay. And the other thing is like, they're clearly coming at Fuji. And, oh, absolutely. Yeah. But like Fuji has, they have carved this out. Like, all of their lenses and like all are, are built around like here's the Fuji box. If it doesn't fit in the Fuji box, it's not. It's going to look stupid yep. on XT5. Well, and not to mention film simulations and all that. I mean, they they're they're playing in Fuji's world. Yeah, like, yeah. And like this is this is a super cool camera. But I mean, if you if you don't care about full frame, I feel like the XT5 for two hundred dollars cheaper is a better camera yeah. all the way around. You're going to have better more affordable lens choices. Mm -hmm. You're going to get all the film simulations. More affordable, smaller, lighter lens choices that fit the camera and the aesthetic. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is, what, is it a 24.5 megapixel? Right. The Fuji's 40 megapixel. 40 I mean, huge megapixels. Difference. So, like, sure, smaller. And, like, what's that, what's, that's going to cost you a stop of ISO performance on the top end, which you're probably not shooting that ISO anyway, but basically like one stop of noise. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's it. Like it's, it's one stop of noise and like you're basically going to have similar width. Like the Fuji, you can get that Sigma now, 10 millimeters, man. Like you got, you got the width, you got the extra reach and like you get the film simulations, you get the higher megapixels, the video functionality of the Fuji is just straight up better. Mm -hmm. Like the, the Nikon's going to be better noise better autofocus yeah i mean i feel like if if you're buying in a vacuum if you don't own any cameras or you don't care about buying into a new system i think the xt5 is indisputably a, be a better camera than this but if you're already a nikon shooter and you've already got nikon lenses and you're used to nikon menus i mean this is probably worth it over the xt5 sure. in that case i would I honestly would be torn if I was coming into this cold and I didn't know either, like I didn't have investment into either system. I would have a hard time of like, man, but this is full frame. Cause like, you know, the full frame cult is strong and it's like, true. Maybe, like, well, man, I mean, maybe that's really cool. But I think that, I think that the Fuji just sells this better because you are buying, you're buying the entire ecosystem. Yeah. It's, yeah. The, it's the lenses and the simulations and all this, like it is like a hundred percent a package of like, here's the Fuji world. And I think the other interesting thing about the Fuji thing is like people will have the Fuji stuff in addition to, and like, Oh, like, that's super common. I remember we've talked many times in the show about how people are like, Oh yeah, I just have my Fuji for fun. And like, here's my yeah. professional camera and it's mm -hmm. a, a Nikon or a Canon. Yeah. It's like have an XT five and like a 23 mil and a 56 mil. And like mm -hmm. people love that and they're real happy with it. 
And then they have their their Nikon 1DX that they bought 15 years ago. That's their pro camera or something. Yeah. Or like they have two R5s, whatever. And like this this Nikon thing is like maybe maybe that's the other appeal of this is like you have those people who want their fun camera and they want their professional camera. Well, now you're you can use the same lenses. Yeah, yeah. And I do think that's an appeal. I mean, we do talk about you know, well, they're not gonna they're gonna look dumb, you know, or they don't. It's gonna be this huge lens and this little camera, but. I mean, I could totally see, you know, you're in a pinch or you're trying to get a certain kind of shot. Sure, it's great if you can use these lenses you already have. Yeah, yeah. I think the other thing here is like the files, right? I mean, you're, if you know how to work, if you're like a pro photographer and you you are, you're really used to the Nikon RAWs, it's going to be the same thing. Yeah, it's And so point. now your fun camera is like all your presets work mm-hmm. and it's going to behave in a predictable way. And so, yep. I don't know. This I think I think that like that's the target market is like this is maybe to get the young folk into into Nikon because it looks cool, and then get all of the people who already shoot Nikon to just buy another body because it's neat. Yeah. Well, and I mean that may work out for them. I can yeah. see it. I think it's a cool camera. It's good. Yeah. The colors were a really good move. Honestly, I'll give it a I'll give it a eight out of ten. <laughs> yeah. Because it has a Z8 processor and it's not a Fuji. Nah. Man, if it said Fuji on it. Whew. Oh boy. Ooh, I heard about two of them. Yep. Pretty cool. I yep. like it. Pretty cool. Do we got time for one more? Uh, I don't think we should. I think we're uh, we're pretty far on time today. All right. Cool. We'll have to talk about the, the not the Pixel 8 later. Yeah. Yeah, we'll save that for next week. Cool. That's it for the show today. Thanks for joining us. And if you liked it, tell a friend so they can check it out too. You can find out more about the show at www.cameragearpodcast.com and you can find us on Twitter at Camera Gear Pod. We'll be back with more next week.